0: But today is BB Day. The, the newly queen waves from the Belgium. has led Apollo 11 They're has tearing landed. down the Berlin Wall. Since 1929, the Monks Investment Trust's mission has been to help investors grow their wealth. We aim to do this today by taking a three-dimensional approach to growth: cyclical growth, rapid growth, and steady growth.
1: The world Wide the web Wall Street is in turmoil
0: as stocks crash. The Monks Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford, Capital at risk.
1: Hello, I'm John Schafer, and welcome to The Wealth Show from Citywide. I'm here today with Chris Joy, CIO of Bar Capital. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Good stuff. Well, Chris, you, you recently partnered with Pacific Asset Management to launch a, a long-only credit fund, um, seemingly in a bid to access the European fund manage, fund market. So how does your approach to fixed income differ from the other massive <coughs>
0: bond fund houses? Yeah, so we're very active. Um, We typically turn over our portfolios 10 to 20 times a year, um, whereas a conventional fixed income manager might turn over their portfolio half a times or 0.5 times a year. Um, We're also very focused on what we'd call mispricings or alpha. So we would typically have 100 to 200 active positions in our portfolio, much like an active equity manager, whereas a uh, typical uh, fixed income manager, uh, one of the larger institutions might have two or three thousand individual securities. They're much more uh, far and forget or hold to maturity and they're not trying to turn over the individual assets to drive uh, alpha or capital gain on top of yield. So. In fixed income, people uh, generally try and reach for risk in that search for yield. And the risks they're focusing on are taking on more illiquidity risk, taking on more default risk or taking on more duration risk. We minimise all those risks. So our portfolios tend to be very highly rated, typically A to AA rated. Uh, They don't have default risks. We have no liquidity risk. Because we're literally turning over the portfolio. To you have end. no default risk, no liquidity risk. <clears throat> we would argue, yeah. So the average I mean, credit that, that's rating is not true, is it? We would argue that the you're in problem, credit markets. It's it's impossible. Uh, well, it's not impossible. So almost all of our portfolios are highly rated bank bonds. Um, that are implicitly or um, in crises have been explicitly government guaranteed. So right now, for example, all of our uh, portfolios are focused on senior ranking uh, bank securities uh, and we have some exposure to tier two bonds. Now, uh, even in the Credit Suisse crisis, we were shorting Credit Suisse senior bonds in 2022. Um, not in this long-only strategy, in our long-short strategies. Uh, And we had a blanket ban on long exposures to Credit Suisse, which we introduced in August 2021. Uh, But in the Credit Suisse collapse, their hybrids were wiped out, Hmm. their equity was hammered, but their Tier 2 bonds were fully protected, their senior bonds were fully protected, and their deposits were fully protected. So I think any um, experienced fixed-income professional would say that you know, A to AA rated global banks like Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, uh, you know, the the Canadian, Aussie, Singaporean, (laughs) Japanese banks. Their senior ranking bonds are regarded as near risk free. Now, you know, is there a risk that um, Goldman Sachs defaults on its senior bonds? Yes, but, you know, statistically and empirically it's infinitesimally small. So we would argue that our portfolios are relatively default risk free. Um, They're incredibly liquid Mm. because we're turning them over 10 to 20 times a year, whereas most fixed income managers carry a lot of inherent illiquidity and they're searching for yield. They're not trying to... So we use 80 to 90 quantitative models to reprice every bond we trade globally.
1: Let's step back a little bit. Why are there mispricing opportunities in this specific market? You'd assume it's pretty well covered. You're looking at very um,
0: highly secure bonds. You're looking at banks (coughs) here.
1: Why are there mispricing opportunities here?
0: Yeah, so the... OTC or over-the-counter fixed income markets are very different to um, other uh, asset classes. So equities are listed, bonds are not listed, um, and 75% of the value of trading in OTC credit is done by voice. So there's no digital trading, there's no straight through processing. And what that means is that OTC fixed income is largely devoid of algorithms or quantitative investors. Now, we're highly quantitative, we have uh, you know, 12, portfolio managers and traders, and 12 analysts, and we use 80 to 90 models uh, or potentially in excess of that, depending on the the situation, to price all bonds globally that we're trading, looking for mispricings, trying to generate capital gains. Um, But in OTC, fixed income, um, most of the uh, investor universe is hold to maturity, passive. They're not looking for those mispricings. And what that means is inherently you you get a lot of inefficiency. You also have um, a very opaque market. Because uh, in many countries, there's no price reporting at all. So we've, since the start of last year, we've traded over hundred billion US of bonds. We're typically trading, you know, three to 400 million a day, uh, 50 to 100 times a day. And uh, most of those prices and most of the markets we trade are not reported anywhere. Uh, we trade with more than 80 banks globally. Uh, our typical holding periods are measured in days. We're not you know, holding yep. it forever. Um, and we'll get bids and offers sent by 80 banks globally to us. And often those bids and offers cross and create pure arbitrage opportunities. Now, we would never, uh, for the avoidance of doubt, ever arbitrage our very valued um, uh, you know, bank counterparty uh, relationships. But it's inherently one of the most inefficient markets you'll ever find. Um, and so partly it's a function of market microstructure or the design of the market. But crucially, the other reason is that the investors that uh, proliferate uh, fixed income tend to be inherently very passive. Now, this has been amplified by the advent of ETFs. Mm. Fixed income ETFs have absolutely exploded globally, and they're all index-based investors, which means they're value or price agnostic-based investors. They're not trying to uh, figure out what bonds are cheap or expensive. Why don't you think your competitors are being as active? Yeah, so it's a a really important question, and um, there's a kind of really obvious answer. And that's because in fixed income, active managers are not paid active fees. So if you look at your typical active okay. equity fund or your private equity fund, you know, they're paid hundreds of basis points in fees, and performance fees are very, very common. Your active fixed income manager uh, is typically paid by institutional accounts, 10, 20, 30 basis points, no performance fees. So the first point I'd make is that uh, if you paid passive fees, you're most of the time gonna give uh, passive portfolios. That's why I won't name names, but Fine. your biggest global fixed income funds that are active have You know two three thousand bonds in a portfolio covered by two PMs They can't possibly be actively managing two to three thousand bonds conversely We're running hundred to two hundred super high-grade bond positions with near you know, um, Zero default risk super high liquidity um, That that are very liquid and safe, but are still mispriced and we can yeah. generate Capital gain on top of the yield to drive total return So what's the fee structure for your fund? Um, The fee structure varies according to the unit classes, um, but there is a performance fee and there is a management fee. So our fees are generally higher than peers, uh, and that performance fee is above the global aggregate index uh, after we hurdle our management fees. But yeah, the fees vary depending on the uh, investor class. Could you quantify that? Uh, I can't, actually, right now. Okay.
1: We, haven't, we haven't actually I mean, launched the product. It is important because that will obviously yeah. eat into returns. And what kind of returns
0: are you, are you targeting here? So historically, we've generated about uh, 2.5% above the global aggregate index okay. um, uh, after fees. And so 2.5% per annum over the global aggregate index after fees. And um, we'd be targeting 100 to 200 basis points or 1% to 2% over global ag- after fees. So this particular product, the Pacific Coulomba Global Aggregate, Um, strategy, is uh, a strategy that's benchmarked against the global Aggregate index, which is a long duration index, Mm. with bond yields increasing dramatically. So we've seen bond yields, government bond yields, at the 10-year tenor increase from about 0.5%, or a negative in some countries, to as much as, in the US right now, 4.6%. So a lot of investors are trying to get fixed rate duration exposure. uh, And what we've been able to do historically is give them that duration, which previously was very unattractive, and generate hundreds of basis points of excess return above that. But crucially, we're not generating that excess return through going down the capital structure, going into heavy exposures to sub-investment grade, illiquids, private credit. Uh, We're not trying to search for yield by taking on default or liquidity risk. We're Mm -hmm. using those you know, 60, 80, 90-plus quantitative models globally uh, to price assets to look for mispricings. Bonds paying too much interest for their risk factors. And really what we want to find is a bond paying 7% that will mean revert down to 6%, and we get that 100 basis points of spread compression, and we get price appreciation. And that price appreciation supplements the organic yield we earn on the securities. Um, You previously described credit managers as not being particularly smart. Why do you think that? Um, Listen, I I think the credit managers are very bright guys, generally, um, but what I would say is there's probably a bit of a self-selection bias um, in in the global fixed income universe vis-a-vis other asset classes. So the the simple math is this, if you're a crazy smart kid that's been to Oxbridge um, and you want to maximise the value of your human capital, you're going to work in listed equities, private equity, hedge funds, venture capital, private equity, investment banking. One of the uh, lower tier choices would be to go and run a long-only cash fund or bond fund simply because you're not paid as well. And the reason you're not paid as well comes back to the original point that active fixed income managers are paid passive fees and give clients passive portfolios. Um, So I I actually do – I'm comfortable making the point that the quality of human capital and fixed income is unambiguously inferior, unambiguously inferior to other asset classes. We see that. We find it really hard to find high-quality talent in fixed income, and we've often hired from other asset classes. I have 38 executives working for me around the world uh, in, in our um, investment team, uh, and, and we try and look at um, all available asset classes. What's your preferred one? Um, we hire it, I would,
1: you would have thought private equity might, might be sort of suitable for, for, for this if you were sort of dealing with over-the-counter over kind of...
0: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, our preferred um, you know, vector for talent is uh, engineers, computer scientists, right. programmers, um, particularly people who are very bright but also have a lot of humility. Uh, and again, I don't want to cast aspersions against the private equity guys or the investment bankers, but humility and intellectual horsepower don't, you know, often uh, find you know, they're not often easy bedfellows in those markets. Okay. Whereas, you know, the engineers and the programmers and the computer scientists that are coming into the asset class fresh, um, we find uh, are often incredible um, traders and very functional. Okay. What don't you like in fixed income markets at the moment? So I think one of the problems that asset allocators have is that for the 15 years after the 2008 crisis, we had near zero cash rates and there was this monstrous search for yield. And the key beneficiaries of that were things like commercial real estate, private credit, high-yield bonds, equities. And all those asset classes now face the spectre of this unprecedented increase in risk-free rates. So the US 10-year government bond as I mentioned, trading over 4.6% in the last 24 hours. Um, and that prevents a, a, sorry, presents a tremendous threat um, to many of these alternatives. So we are facing right now the biggest default cycle uh, that we're seeing in global corporate Um, credit uh, since the 2008 crisis. Uh, US bankruptcy filings already are the highest since 2010. Now that's interesting because the US economy has been incredibly resilient. Mm. Unemployment is incredibly low. And thus far, the global economy, economy has been able to resist much of the impact of these punitive rate hikes. The reason the economy has fared so well is that consumers saved a tremendous amount during the pandemic, because we locked down economies, they were forced to save, and governments gave them cash. But the fact of the matter is this uh, default cycle is burgeoning. Uh, We're seeing these um, uh, pockets of concentrated concentrated stress in uh, commercial real estate globally, in construction, uh, and a big increase in insolvencies. And this is gonna be a multi-year process. So we're particularly negative on global private credit because illiquid asset classes will take the longest to adjust. We haven't seen much adjustment at all in private credit spreads. So what we have seen is a huge adjustment in global bank bonds, right? One of the reasons I mentioned earlier, we're long bank senior and bank tier two. We were shorting $8 billion of bank senior and bank tier two between June 21 and June 22. We had no exposure to the sector, but we're now massively long because Silicon Valley, Credit Suisse, and the big expansion spreads in liquid, high-grade bank bonds in 22 and 23 makes them very, very attractive. In private credit, we don't see that. The other area that's, I think, really worrying is global high yield. So if you look at US single B-rated spreads, they're actually trading at about 400 over US treasuries. And they're about 150 basis points lower than they would be normally. Now, that makes no mm. sense. In every other default cycle we've seen in 02, 08, 11, 12, 15, 16, 2020. High yield has been trading, single B rated US high yield, been trading at about 750 to 1,000 over US treasuries. And right now, we're at circa 400 over US treasuries. It's not worth it, not worth the risk. It's not worth the risk, but you need to ask yourself the question, why? Like, why would it be trading? Like, who's kind of allowing it to trade at 400 over? The problem is illiquidity. There's no liquidity in the global high yield market. There's no liquidity, obviously, by definition in private credit. So it's not adjusting. And it's gonna be, we think we're gonna have a multi-year default cycle. uh, And we think there are gonna be profound headwinds for all asset classes. Um, And really the only uh, safe harbors right now are cash, uh, high-grade government bonds, which give you the benefit of those high-yields, and high-grade bank bonds. We're also, I want to make very clear, we're very negative corporate credit, so corporate Mm. bonds. Why? Because they're also very illiquid, and they're also exposed to this pro-cyclical default cycle. So we're trying to avoid- the bank's not
1: exposed to this default cycle as well, after a certain point.
0: So after the GFC, we saw a tremendous shift of risk, quite, Quite. amazing shift of risk out of the banking system into the non-bank lenders. So private credit didn't really exist in many countries Mm. around the world before 2008. Private credit has absolutely exploded. So you've had all these non-banks basically financing the zombie firms that the regulators after the 08 crisis, all around the world, the the Basel rules came in and global regulators said, we're not gonna bail out the banks again and you've gotta stop lending to these dud businesses. And particularly, you've gotta stop lending to commercial real estate, and to construction and resi developers and you know, tech companies that are not profitable. Sure. Our analysis suggests, and this is quite, a, I think, astonishing, that 10 years ago, only 5% of all listed companies globally were zombies. Now, a zombie is defined as a company that doesn't have sufficient EBITDA or income to pay the interest on its debt, right? So um, 10 years ago, about 5% of firms were zombies. Today, that number is about 10 to 15% of all listed equities. So we've seen this huge increase in the the proportion of zombies, and they're all financed by the high-yield markets and the private credit markets. So the banks on their balance sheets, they've spent 15 years deleveraging, And they've spent 15 years remediating the problems they had in the GFC. We're not at all worried about bank balance sheets. Now, that's a generalisation. Obviously, in crypto banks like Silicon Valley, disaster. There are clearly some commercial real estate dependent US regional banks that are problematic. But we only trade um, the most high-grade banks globally. We don't touch, for example, just as an example... um, HSBC. You know, we we consider HSBC uh, to carry too much conglomerate risk uh, exposure to Hong Kong, China, uh, the U.S., uh, Europe. Uh- you know, I mean, uh, banks will still loan to the average consumer, to small
1: businesses, etc. There's there's potential for default there, isn't there? Yeah,
0: there's going to be defaults. So do, yeah. uh, we're expecting a significant increase in defaults in uh, in the resi mortgage market, yeah. in the SME market, in the you know, mid-cap business market. But the point is that banks are much better provisioned today and they've got sure. uh, they've had a massive increase in their equity capital ratios and the provisioning is more than sufficient to cover the default cycle that we're expecting within the banking system. The, the problems really rest in the non-bank system which hasn't really uh, financed a default cycle like this before because many of these private credit guys never existed um, uh, you know, in 2008. So, so with this sort of pretty bearish stance, does that mean you're looking to short a lot of things? Um, we are looking for opportunities to short high yield and, uh, and also sort of riskier investment-grade credit. Um, as I mentioned, we had about $8 billion of shorts in our portfolios between June 21 and June 22. Um, but we cut those shorts and went back into high-grade financials and high-grade government bonds uh, in mid-22, and we, re- we remain in you know, very long those sectors. Um, I think the, the interesting issue with shorting high-yield right now is it's so illiquid that high-yield spreads have been very, very sticky. So we haven't pulled the trigger on any high-yield shorts, but I definitely think it looks ostensibly attractive. Um, The other thing that's interesting, I think, is another way to short is using derivatives, specifically credit default swaps, and and more precisely index-based CDS, which we've used a lot in the past. Now, the problem with index-based CDS and CDS generally is it tends to price off equities, and that in turn raises uh, the problem that equity valuations have been incredibly rich and resilient and resistant to uh, these rate hikes. Now, it does appear that there's been a recent you know, modest capitulation in equities. And it feels like um, that the market is sort of coming to grips with the idea, well, you know, the market was pricing 100 basis points of cuts for the Fed next year. You might remember, bond markets were pricing 100 basis points of cuts for the Fed this year, Mm. right? We thought that was absolutely preposterous. They've disappeared. They shifted those into 2024. The Fed, uh, a week or two ago, came out and said, actually – we're not cutting rates by 100 basis points in 2024. We're only going to cut rates by 50 basis points, which has pushed up bond yields and it's put downward pressure on equities. Um, And I think that uh, the risk is that the more this higher for longer paradigm entrenches itself, uh, the greater the headwinds that equities, commercial real estate, VC, PE, private debt and high yield are going to face.
1: And do you think those mispricing opportunities on bank bonds are still gonna be the same sort of over the next 12 months? Is that, is that your sort of biggest bullish play? Essentially?
0: Yeah, we, we've we been trading this stuff, you know, um, for the last, intensively for the last 11 years. Yeah. And and the mispricings tend to be, because the market structure is inherently so inefficient, because most active bond managers are actually passive, because there's no one actually like Koulomba mm-hmm. uh, acting as an opportunistic market maker of sorts, competing away those inefficiencies. In fact, one of our biggest bugbears is the inefficiencies are so large and so persistent. They don't mean revert fast enough. We want the, the mispricings to di- disappear as quickly as possible to pick up those returns. Um, but our global peer universe has, has not sort of emulated our efforts thus far. So we, we would like more competition, and we're not aware of any competition um, vis-a-vis what we do. So I think the the opportunity tactically that you're hinting at right now is that post-Silicon Valley, post Credit Suisse you know, UBS, for example, UBS, one mm-hmm. of the safest banks in the world now, right? You know, rolled gold government guaranteed uh, vis-a-vis the Swiss state. Um, you know, their senior bonds went to 350 over overbounds the day they bought Credit Suisse. The day they announced the, the Credit Suisse purchase, every bank in the world was shorting UBS. Their share price fell 16%. Their senior bonds went to 350 overbounds. We went out and bought $600 million of UBS senior paper on the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Now, when I said to my traders, you know, our analysis was: this is equity po- positive for UBS, and it's credit positive. Uh, we thought they were picking up um, uh, credit Swiss about 30 billion cheap. Now they've since formally recognised that they're uh, realising a 37 billion Swiss franc gain on the acquisition. Um, uh, but when we tried to go out and buy those bonds that day, we couldn't find any. Now, there's a hundred billion US dollars of UBS bonds in the market. And we went to 80 banks and said, hey, we want to buy as much as possible. And my traders came back to me a few hours later and said, listen, we can only find 9, 9 million euros worth. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I would have expected, you know, they would have picked that up by that point, hundreds of millions of dollars or euros worth. Um, so it took us three se- sessions to pick up about 600 million worth. I think that process actually catalyzed a bit of a short squeeze, but I think the the street, as in the investment banking peers and competitors of UBS, all just thought Credit Suisse was a disaster, ipso facto, UBS is going to be a disaster. And remember at that point in time, the crosshairs were quickly turning to Deutsche. Mm, And we actually kind of intervened uh, a little bit in that drama as well. Could you explain... uh
1: Intervening. I mean, you've, you've described yourself as a as an activist bond investor. I mean, is this a, an example of that?
0: Yeah, in, in an interesting way, I think. So we were. I mentioned that we were shorting Credit Suisse in twenty twenty two, but that was you know simply on the basis, and we had a ban on long exp- exposure to Credit Suisse in August twenty twenty one. So we our view was Credit Suisse was just a you know, second rate investment bank. Um, you know, but the problems had been uh, a multi-year process. And the fact is that Credit Suisse was actually remediating most of its problems come 2023. Like by March 2023, there was an enormous amount of reform underway. So Credit Suisse knew what the problems were, Seal, you know, the other sort of uh, prime broking dramas, and they were being, in our view, cauterized. It didn't mean we liked Credit Suisse, but we did not participate in any of the short selling on Credit Suisse in March 23. Our view was that was pretty much unambiguous market manipulation. So what happened was And this kind of um, segues into DB. What happened was that with uh, the advent of Silicon Valley banks collapse, for the first time in history, we saw high velocity digital deposit runs. So SVB lost 42 billion in deposits on one day. The hedge funds that wanted to exploit this recognized that if you could create a lot of hysteria around banks, and they quickly lost hundreds of billions of dollars of deposits, you could threaten their solvency. Now, again, there was nothing wrong with Credit Suisse. It was just a dud investment bank. It it did not deserve to die. But there was an enormous amount of misinformation propagated through the media. All the traders on the street were talking about this. Uh, And it was a slow-moving train wreck. There was one particular report that the Saudi National Bank uh, wasn't going to increase its equity stake Mm. in Credit Suisse that precipitated, I think, a 30% collapse in the share price that day. Now, the SMB had said that on numerous previous occasions. It wasn't new news. I think Bloomberg ran the story. Um, and again, traders... But,
1: but, but that was at a crux point to save the bank, wasn't it? That, that, that's well, they were, asked a
0: question, they were asked a question, you know, I, will you increase your equity stake? And they repeated a statement they made in the past, yeah. which for, for regulatory reasons, we can't increase it, right? Yeah. I didn't think that was new news, right? Uh, nonetheless, the Swiss regulators were... They, they Regulators have never dealt with these digital deposit runs before. We've never seen them. In the 08 uh, crisis, the people queued outside Northern Rock, right? You couldn't get 42 billion mm-hmm. out in a single day. Um, so so they, they acted too slowly. If the Swiss had simply said, in the case of Credit Suisse, um, the deposits are government guaranteed, as the US regulators did after Silicon Valley, because all those depositors were protected, if the Swiss authorities had simply said Credit Suisse deposits are guaranteed there would never have been a run because there was no risk. With no risk, there cannot be a run. It's tautological, right? What did the Swiss do after the event? They guaranteed all the Swiss, uh, the Credit Suisse deposits. They didn't just guarantee the deposits, they guaranteed the senior bonds and the subordinated bonds, only the hybrids and equity were having. Mm. Now, in the case of DB, as soon as we saw Credit Suisse transpire, we knew DB was next and, and all the hedgies turned to DB. And So what they do is for a small amount of money, they start shorting the uh, CDS. For like tens of millions of dollars, you can move it materially, which is not a great amount of money. And they short the the, the cash bonds, again, for little amounts of money, if you start attacking the right banks in the street, you move those spreads materially. Then the equity response, so this was a a constructive hyperbolic attack on DB as the next domino to fall after Credit Suisse. We could see it unfolding, and it reached an apogee in one session on a Friday. Uh, our intervention was as follows, we, we didn't want to participate, we thought it was market manipulation, but we didn't think the authorities were um, responding correctly and with sufficient intensity and speed. So I wrote to the CEO, the global CEO of Deutsche, the UK CEO of Deutsche and the Asian CEO, and I said, you guys need to basically get the German state to come out and clarify that your deposits are fully government guaranteed and that the DB is okay. bulletproof. We also wrote to the ECB and we said, you guys need to either ban short selling on financial securities as you did in the 08 crisis. Uh, or you need to announce an investigation into short selling on financial securities because this is clear market manipulation. And I reached out to the Financial Times and Bloomberg and this was you know, there was mm. no financial acts here. This was just because we thought what was happening was market manipulation. And so I spoke to numerous journalists at Bloomberg and FT and I said, listen guys, you're not reporting on this properly. You know, you're basically mm. um, you know, pushing the investment axes of these hedge funds who are all massively mm. conflicted and they're trying to create as much hysteria and hyperbole as possible. Um, I don't know whether it was coincidental, but uh, a few hours later, the German Chancellor came out and said DB is too big to fail. Um, The ECB, the same session, came out and said they're investigating short sellers of financial securities in Europe. And lo and behold, what happened? The shorts all covered their positions in the equities and the bonds. The equity closed up on the day having been smashed that session earlier. The, the credit closed tighter on the day, having been hundreds of basis points wider, and it was a, a simple sort of one fell swoop by the regulator to say, "Hey, there's nothing to see here. We're not going to allow this institution to fail, and the deposits are safe." That cauterize the deposit outflow. So. That was, a, I guess, a, an example of. Um, I know it sounds. Well,
1: remains to be seen how much influence you have, but, but, a, a coincidence, maybe, but it was maybe a coincidence, a, but uh, but very uh, very timely. It
0: but it, it was it. also, I think, more altruistic activism. Yeah. We didn't have a financial agenda. It was more that we wanted. Our, our Actually, our financial interest was in financial system stability. We didn't want to see banks needlessly blow up. Fine. Chris, been great to talk to you. Thank, Thank you very you much. Very much. But today is B.E. Day, the really queen has led Apollo 11 has tearing landed. down the Berlin Wall. Since 1929, the Monks Investment Trust's mission has been to help investors grow their wealth. We aim to do this today by taking a three-dimensional approach to growth: cyclical growth, rapid growth, and steady growth.
1: The worldwide web. Wall Street is in turmoil as stocks crash. The
0: Monks Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford, Capital at Risk.